seconds flat. Give me up. Look at Bill! Look at Bill! This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. He's been broken three times. He refuses to give in. He might do it. Look at that guy. Look at Blake Jones. Oh, my gosh. Hello again, friends. Welcome in for mile 90 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. Travis and Benjamin here with you. Benji, what's happening, brother? Just, you know, listening to the rain outside of my window, excited to talk running with my best friend. Oh, you are a sweetheart. That is a soothing background. You know what I like to do? I have this app that I play at night called Rain Rain, and you can put like brown noise or pink noise overlapped with rain sounds and camping sounds and yeah. My wife and I use uh, a Spotify track called White Noise for Babies. Oh, perfect. It's just like an oscillating fan noise. Mm. So kind of similar. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's, uh, <laughs> let's talk about running. The goal for this week is to talk about training basics to get you on the right track. These are our favorite tips, both for the runner getting started or restarted, and for the runner who is currently training, maybe even training hard but is uncertain of his or her direction. So hopefully some simple guidance here that helps you refrain from being a prisoner of the moment, which I think in running and in life, whether good or bad, is such a difficult task to manage. We get so caught up in the moment and we just want to pause, take a deep breath here this week and remember that successful distance running just like life is a long-term endeavor and you're not going to flip the switch in one day, but Ben has tried probably a dozen times to flip the switch in one day. He can tell you better than anyone. I am guilty. We learn in time that through our experiences, the stuff we'll talk about today has helped us grow consistently over the long haul. First, before we do that, Benji, let's quickly touch on the Diamond League meeting at Monaco last weekend. I would say along with the U.S. Olympic trials, this has been the most anticipated event of the season so far. We consistently see world records fall at Monaco, and some of the events had fields rivaling what we'll see in Tokyo for the Olympic Games in a few weeks. Benjamin, let's start with you. Biggest takeaway from the Diamond League at Monaco. My biggest takeaway is that we may not see the best 1,500 meter runner in the world at the Olympic Games. Yes. First, there's no question that he is the best 1,500 meter runner in the world right now and has been for some time. Uh, You're referring to Timothy Chariot, who reestablished himself as the best in the world on the biggest stage but the reason we might not see him. The question remains if the Kenyan Athletics Committee will award him a discretionary spot on their team for Tokyo after he finished fourth at the Kenyan trials, which more and more every week looks just like a fluke. Uh, What did old TC do this weekend, Benji? 
he actually went away from his normal race strategy, which is to go right with the pacers, hammer from the front, and draw the kick out of uh, his competitors. He actually hung back a few steps behind the pacers, allowed a bunch of people in the race with 200 meters to go, and showed the Kenyan Federation that he was the man to beat at Tokyo, that he had gears he could change to win in a championship setting, and that they shouldn't doubt that he is healthy and ready to go. With that said, we both know the selections of these teams in really most of the world can be a politicized and sometimes also corrupt prospect. Here, it's the top three at the trials go, and there's not exceptions to that formula. You and I had a recent Strava exchange about a book I read a couple months ago, Track in the Forest, about the 1968 Olympic trials here in the U.S. up at Echo Summit at elevation near Lake Tahoe in preparation for the Mexico City Games being at over 7,000 feet. Interesting piece of that is athletes were competing in kind of a pre-trials trials that year in Los Angeles earlier in the summer, and there was discussion that People who won events there would be guaranteed their spot, regardless of what happened at the 68 official trials at elevation. There was a vote cast, a voice vote cast at the beginning at Echo Summit among the athletes who did not have their coaches present, I would add, but the athletes, they didn't have the coaches to speak for them, agreed to allow the top finishers from the second trials to be the official team. So the great example that we can extrapolate from American history to Timothy Chariot in the 1500 today is former Villanova star Dave Patrick won the 15 at Los Angeles, finished fourth when they went to elevation. Frankly, he didn't really train much for it in the uh, weeks to month in between when he thought his spot was assured. He didn't train with the vim and vigor of his competitors until he got to uh, Lake Tahoe and he lost his spot. A lot of athletes felt for him because of that. And he certainly was a potential medal contender. We're talking here about the medal favorite if he's there for gold, but this is the way teams get picked in many other parts of the world. And there is often controversy, particularly among the East African selections. The fourth place finish at the Kenyan trials I think is a one-off when he continues to put down world-leading times. It would be a disappointment for the sport if he's not there for us to see him potentially at his best against the best in the world. Also in that event, you had uh, Stuart McSwain. He betters his Australian record and is the first Aussie sub-330 in the 1500 meters. He also passed Nick Willis's best time. And so I think that that's like an entire Oceana record. Is that correct? Did you see his face after the race? Oh, brilliant. He was not pleased. Yeah. He he just closed a 329 in a 54-second lap and finished fourth. You could see how bad he wants to be the best in the world. Right. That's why I said brilliant, because how often do you see a – a regional record fall and a guy just seemed disappointed but that's been the trajectory of his season the Aussies what incredible history and what they have going on for them right now you and I have exchanged some texts about their milers that they have on the scene right now but that's a rich legacy 
Another book recommendation, I'm going to go two for you here early. Uh, this is kind of obscure. There is an Australian running website called Runner's Tribe. Uh, that yeah. They're fantastic. And this is where like some of the Matt Baxter stuff came out after NAU won the championship and his training logs and favorite workouts came out there. They did a book called Australian Marathon Stars. And it ranks the top 10 male and top 10 female Australian marathoners of all time. And then they interviewed each and asked a lot of the same questions so you could see themes to their training and racing. So it starts with a little bio of the runner, then we get the Q&A, and then we get their training logs. Wow. Really cool stuff. A lot of commonality. You see a lot of them doing uh, the famous Deeks or Aussie quarters, 400 on, 200 floats. You see the Mona Getty fartlek, like I did for my workout this morning, the 20 minutes uh, compact fartlek that gives you a great threshold alternation effort. But really, really cool to dig into their rich history. If you're willing to pay for the shipping from Australia, you can get that in paperback. It's a little pricey, but they did uh, also just come out with an ebook format too. So get it on your Kindle. Back on track here. McSwain, fantastic. The other story from that race, Jakob Ingebrigtsen. He is third in 329. He missed out on running at Stockholm the previous weekend because he was sick. In an interview, he said he missed some training as well. Doesn't concern me. To me, then, we move forward and ask the more important question. If Chariot's back in the game, and he's in the 15, and the 15 and 5,000 overlap with their timing in Tokyo, it's, it's virtually impossible to do both. Does the Norwegian wonderkind challenge chariot in the 15 or does he go to the 5000 where he recently set a european record opinion benji i think he goes to the 5000 i believe his heart is in the 1500 mm. and most people would disagree with us saying that he well i can't speak for you i don't know your opinion yet that he's still young be competitive in the 1500 show up there while you can but i say you got to strike where you're hottest he ran 12.48, taking big names. He took down the world record holder in the 5,000, a world championship 10K medalist in Mohamed. I, I, he hasn't beat Chariot yet. He is now, what, 12-0? and 0, mm-hmm. Or 0-12, oh I guess is how real sports people say that. Well, um, that's, that's not us, though. So 12-0 and 0 it is. I don't see the rationale in doing the 15 over the 5 if Tim is there. I'm going to agree, but I, I have a slightly different opinion here that may be a bit more nuanced of why. There is a risk-reward. The 5,000 leads to the greatest opportunity for gold, but it may be also a riskier move in potentially not even meddling. Last World Champs, he was, uh, I believe, fourth in the 15 and fifth in the 5,000. The 5,000, I think it's just generally going to have a, a slightly deeper field, but not as top heavy. I agree with you that his heart's probably in the 1,500. His style of racing that is more even hasn't necessarily shown the close to win at that distance, but he certainly showed it in the 5K. He definitely has the necessary kick there. You're right. If Chariot's there, it changes the game. If Chariot's not there, 
Do you consider, even though he wouldn't be able to do both, Ingebrigtsen the favorite in both the 1500 and the 5K if Kenya says, hey, TC, stay home and train? That's an excellent question. I mean, in his most recent 1500, he wasn't even second. So can we say he's the favorite if there's at least one other person who has beaten him on the year? And does he now have a faster PR than Jakob does as well? I think he does. Well, okay. I get. I look at this a little bit more like uh, I look at Chariot at the Kenyan trials. I consider the health issue. Ingebrigtsen's been so consistent this year. Maybe it's a bit of a, a one-off again here like it was at the Kenyan trials 1500 for, for Timmy Boy. Yeah, I, I'll say maybe not a clear favorite, but I think as strong as anyone for potential to win – the 15th. And this also is a bit of a rewind to where we were with our trials a few weeks ago. Like Cole Hawker had that incredible close. Matt Centrowitz is the gold medalist, but the pace of the race at which they're running, Ingebrigtsen, and Chariot, even McSwain are doing this off the front in races that are considerably faster. And so the question is how do our best react to that style of racing? If it happens, we don't know that it will happen. Championship racing doesn't always go that way, right? In fact, it often does not. But can those guys even get out of the rounds if there's enough good global competition that pushes it forward? I don't expect you to have answers for that. Just throwing out some rhetorical questions for the audience to consider as we build toward an Olympic preview of the games in our upcoming episodes. Closing thoughts on the 15, Ben? Closing thoughts on Jakob. Please. Um, yes. So you referenced his finishes at the previous world championships. And I do want to add to my reasoning that he would be the 5,000 favorite. If you look at how he executed his race at those championships in the 5,000, he took off hard with 400 meters to go. When we saw him win a couple weeks ago in that fantastic sub 13 race, we didn't see him take the lead until 120 meters to go. He has matured. He has become more confident. He doesn't have to shoot out from 400 meters to go. He's a savvier racer. And I, it's not the 19-year-old kid lining up. He is a more mature racer. Great point. I believe if he is there at 150 in the lead group in a 5,000 meters, 150 to go, he's probably the guy everybody's a little afraid of. I'll go to the women's 800 as my biggest race of the day. It was Laura Muir with an absolutely furious kick moving out into lane four uh, for a personal best of one minute and 56 seconds. She beat her training partner, Gemma Riki and American Kate Grace. Both Riki and Grace at two, three also posted personal bests. Uh, that's now three in a row for Kate Grace who has responded splendidly to missing out on the U.S. Olympic team. Good on her. Riki will be there at the games in the 800. Laura Muir has decided, even though she made the team in the 8 and the 15, that she's going to race 1,500 only because she believes it's her best shot at a medal. She was quoted afterwards as saying, there's a bunch of people who can run the 800 in a minute and 56 seconds. That's I don't know if a bunch is the appropriate term, but certainly just even the American contingent of three would put a lot of pressure on her. With that said, Faith Kipyegon ran 
351 high at Monaco. Maybe that scares Safan Hassan out of the 1500, having lost to her, and makes Muir the next best. So maybe she's a potential silver medal threat. Your thoughts on that race and Muir going 1500 only for the Brits in Tokyo? The correct decision will be decided on whether Safan Hassan lines up in the 15. If Laura Muir is going for her best gold medal opportunity, yes, the 800 is deeper, um, but we saw that explosion with 30 meters to go Mm. in Monaco. And I'm not sure anyone else can replicate that because they're not as strong as her currently. That's a, that's a great point, Ben. As a strength runner, 1,500-based strength runner, a little Clayton Murphy-ish in the close. But that was a gear that I didn't expect because, frankly, the field was moving, and she was not positioned particularly well and had to swing two lanes to the outside. And was, yeah, she had to she had to hit the brake and then was just absolutely shot out of a cannon. But... You're right. It's almost an Ingebrigtsen, like, where do you take the risk for gold versus getting a better shot at a medal kind of situation? I mean, of course, there are factors on race day you have to consider. But on paper, if Safan Hassan locks, or lines up in that 15, Laura Muir is the favorite for bronze. There's just a gap behind her and there's a gap in front of her. It's a matter of, do I want a medal or do I want to win? Because I, I do believe if Safan Hassan does not line up in that 15, it'll be slow enough that Laura Murray can put herself in a position to win. Whereas if Hassan lines up, the 800 is going to go 155-ish, which if she's peaking for the Olympic Games, who's to say she's not capable of that? It's a scary proposition, isn't it, to be a bronze medal favorite? Because that feels like then... You're racing a field of a handful of the other best in the world for one spot. That's dangerous. But I get your point. She has to look at it and think, I'm better than those other runners. If I have my day, I'm better. We'll look back and history will judge. I hope everyone watching that 800 last week could just sit back and enjoy that for what it was and not worry about a critique on what Laura Muir chooses to do and how successful she is in Tokyo, because that was an exceptional performance. Benji, what else do you have from Monaco? There was some drama in the steeplechase. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. What in the world's going on in the steeplechase? Well, let's go ahead and start with the women's race. Let's. If you haven't seen by now, America's golden girl, Emma Coburn, was on her way to a Monaco victory and sub nine performance potentially can i interject for a moment benji yes did you just dub her america's golden girl or is that a title that has been used elsewhere no i I think i've seen her on a show called the golden girls (laughs) hey Um, thank you for being a friend yes yes. travel down the road and back again Down the water pit and back again. Well, yes, we'll get to it. I think if anyone were to be dubbed America's Golden Girl, it could be her, but I'd kind of like to be in, at least in the competition, at least have my name out there mentioned. You got to run the steeplechase first. Oh, my. Can you imagine what it would look like in my current... fitness. I'm in, I'm in good shape right now, but at a certain age, the ability to jump is completely lost. 
uh, from a human. I think it's like, it might be, a, you know, like 30-ish. You kind of just no longer jump unless you're in the NBA. And I have reached that point. I don't know that I could get over the barriers. So I, I'm going to disagree with you. Thank you. Uh, you are a man who practices yoga. I do. I think you have a level of flexibility at your age that might be a little uncommon. And I think you can lift your leg up, go at enough speed that you just whip your trail leg over. You don't really have to jump. I, I think you could do it. So a few points here. One, you should see the things I can do in pigeon pose. Two, whipping your trail leg is a phrase that is very often connected with me on the track. And three, you're right. I could crush the steeplechase, but frankly, I'm just looking for a little bit of confidence. So I tried to sandbag it a little bit there and have you build me up and it worked swimmingly. That's why we do this podcast. <laughs> it's, it's all about us and just feeling better about ourselves. So I am now reintroducing myself into the America's golden girl conversation. But I can see why you suggested Emma Coburn for the win. You mentioned that she took a little spill. Tell us more. So with about 150 meters to go, heading into the steeple barrier, we had a step leading into the barrier that was just a little bit too early. She clips her toes on the barrier, gets a face full of water, um, struggles for a second to get back up, and ultimately finishes fourth which was quite disappointing. But we even had drama in the race before that as the early race leader started sprinting a lap early. <laughs> yes. Uh, so he's actually gaining potentially on the win that entire last lap. So uh, to step back, one, Emma Coburn was in second, just barely behind the lead at the time of her fall. I don't think she was going to win regardless. DVR'd the race, watched the whole meet, two and a half times. It didn't look to me like she had the next year. Could she have won? Possibly, but I, I don't want to present this as, oh, it cost her a victory. I'm also not certain she breaks nine, which was a big conversation point. Uh, maybe she'd have been a hair over. I do think regardless of this fall, and perhaps it's a product of fatigue, perhaps it's um, her approach, I do think the positive here is she once again asserts herself as a medal favorite in yes. Tokyo. Yeah, she, she's got a real shot at America's Golden Girl being on the podium. To the men's race, we go with the classic early bell. This is like something you see in like a high school boys indoor 5,000 where guys have gotten lapped like nine times by the fast guys. And, and people are just like running who knows how many laps on like a 225 meter track, some obscure indoor meet and finishing early. We don't see it at the Diamond League, I believe. Let, let me, while I have a moment here, I'm, I'm going to pull up a text from you from Saturday as, excuse me, that was Friday as the meet was happening. Ben Sessions, 2.59 p.m. Monaco Steeple. Six exclamation points. WTF. <laughs> I respond. 3.03 p.m. The fake bell. Exclamation point. And then here's the money shot right here. 3.05 p.m. Ben, they should be shot. That was a bold statement. And I'm going to hold true to what I said. 
my response was, might be a bit overzealous, but yeah, what an awful mistake. I don't know how that happens. You know what? My favorite thing about the bell at a track meet is the bell in an 800 meter race. When you run one lap and have one to go and they ring the bell, why does that even happen? And that would be even more fun, like if they forgot to ring the bell in an 800. What if they went third lap? <laughs> guys are running, running to the finish. Guys are running three laps. It's a 1200. Um, Popular okay. opinion slash question for you. Please. Is the bell a form of mechanical doping because of the adrenaline spike that you receive from hearing the vibration? You know what? I'm going to abstain from an answer here and do some research on the history of when the bell was first used. Awesome. I'd like to know how long into track and field history we, we went before using the bell or something similar. I wonder if there was a spike in performance. Yeah. Okay. We'll look into it. Enough about steeplechase and random bells. Let's get to the meat for this week. And that is our tips for training basics to make sure you are on the right track toward your running goals. Ben, yes. you have the recent experience here. You are getting back into more serious training. So I'm going to have you start us off. Before I do, though, you've had a little bit of a, a flare-up. You got, you got a bit antsy, spiked up, maybe got the Achilles a little bit angry. There has been some speculation in running circles that this is... Uh, an early excuse to get you out of our duel. So first, I'd like you to respond to that. And second, I'd like to throw down the gauntlet. I'm going to put it out here right now. Labor Day weekend. I'm not going to get into the specifics of the race yet. We'll talk more. But Labor Day weekend, you and me, on the road, 5K. First leg of our duel in the sun. The offer stands. So... First, are you trying to get out of training with this supposed injury? And second, can I entice you back into training with a Labor Day weekend 5K? I mean, what is more American than me and you on the road, 5,000 meters, maybe an apple pie afterward? God bless America. Talk to me, baby. There's a lot to unpack there. So Plenty. I, I will not address... Uh, the injury until we get more into training tips because I think it pertains to that conversation. Okay. So I, you're going to, you'll just avoid that. Go ahead. That's good. I, I will go ahead and say that it is not an excuse. It is, I am taking preventative steps to ensure running in the future by taking time off currently. I don't want to make this worse. It's something relatively, relatively small. And I just want to be cautious because Benji's back, dare I say. <laughs> <laughs> and in regards to those naysayers, in the words of Conor McGregor, you need people like me. Um, I make the sport interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, paint me as a villain or as a once every six months wonder, but I swing every time during that six months. Yeah, you know, say it to my face. I don't know why I'm hearing it through a second party. Find me at the Gaithersburg High School track. We'll take it. Toe to toe. Let's go. Oh, mommy, mommy. There is so much good happening there. Um, 
I will translate for everyone. We're going to let Ben give his first tip momentarily, but let me just translate what you heard there. A lot of talk, a lot of excuses, what? a lot of supposed wisdom. Wisdom? <laughs> very little action. <laughs> just very little action. So we will, uh, we'll just put a pin in that. We'll press pause and let's move on to our tips. Well, well, you don't want to press pause. You're apparently hitting play again. Okay, hit you play. You did have one more question in there that I did not address. Oh, which please. Pertaining to Labor Day weekend. Yes. For those who do not know yet, I will be starting a new uh, job this fall in uh, Clearwater, Florida, and then coaching cross country and track. So I do not know our schedule yet for this fall. As long as I am free that weekend, I am in for this race. Congratulations. I'm super excited for you. I know that will uh, put you near family, be a great opportunity, and it's going to be a great place for us to uh, talk about training with, with your group that you'll have and execute some of these tips that we talk about here ourselves. It did sound to me, once again, like your potential cross-country schedule is just another excuse in a seemingly endless buffet of excuses but we'll see. So Benji, now that you're getting your way back into training, uh, I'm going to go ahead and say it. You're getting revved up for Labor Day. Hit the people with your first big tip, simple training basics. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so for someone specifically in my circumstances as who was competitive or trained just period, I don't want to say you're necessarily competitive, and then took a substantial amount of time off, it's important to be the runner you are that day rather than the runner you were months ago. Uh, so the way I found myself into the situation I am currently is I got excited because I got glimpses of my old fitness. And so rather than just taking that for what it is on that specific day, I altered what I was doing the following days and got greedy. It's important to um, follow a process and logical steps. You don't make a jump overnight. One twenty-seven second 200 does not mean you can run a 404 1500. It, it just doesn't. Whether you feel like that person or not, don't be greedy. Enjoy the process. That's a great overarching point to begin with. The value of patience. The, the value of getting a process lined up. You know, we've said here this year as a theme for this show and for our athletes that we are outcome aware. More importantly, we are process oriented and purpose driven. We take the result into account, but know the steps that are going to lead to, as coach Bill Walsh, a legendary coach of the San Francisco 49ers, took them to multiple Super Bowl victories. I said in a great book, the result takes care of itself. If you do everything right, along the way. That is such sage advice. And so our hope then is we take what you just said, Ben, which is important to keep in mind. Don't think that one good workout means I'm hammering all my workouts now, or that one bad workout means I can never do this again. Don't be a prisoner to the moment, lay out the steps, and then incorporate some of these other things we're going to talk about. So I'll kick it off with my advice on add days before adding distance. So let's say you used to run five days a week, maybe between 30 minutes and an hour, and you're currently running three times a week for 30 minutes. 
you'd like to get back to where you were and believe it would help your performance. First, I don't know all your circumstances, but if you're healthy, I probably agree that five days of running are going to beat three. And my first piece of advice here is next week, add a fourth day. It could be that same amount of time. It doesn't need to be longer. And then a few weeks down the road, we add the fifth day. Or take it back to the start. You're at the beginning. You're running one day a week. We add that second day. And then down the road, we add that third day. That is a much safer and more effective way to improve your training by adding a day as your first step rather than trying to suddenly double the length of all your runs while running the same number of days per week. That, you're probably not ready to jump to those three days. Now I'm running 90 minutes on each of those three days. There's a wiser course here. And then along the way, we start modulating our distances. One of those days gets a little longer. And maybe another one is even shortened a little to like 20 minutes as part of your recovery. Then we get a basic pace change like hills or strides. Something simple is incorporated. So the basic premise here is take one step at a time. Don't try to overdo it and rush to where you once were or where you eventually want to be. So in that way, I think I'm echoing what you'd said, Ben, but then adding something more concrete in, in our belief that days before distance is a good place to start in ramping it up. Back to you, big boy. Yeah, so we've talked about on episodes previously centered around tapering, the three variables of training being duration, intensity, and frequency. We've talked about maybe changing one of those factors in a taper if you're changing anything. Um, do you have a level of importance and implement, implementation of those when starting back? Because it sounds like uh, you're going frequency, duration, intensity. Is that correct? Yes, I, I believe you're right. And I, I think you could add a fourth variable to this list of density mm -hmm. uh, for the people who run multiple times a day or do multiple activities per day. And I would probably put it fourth on the list if we were rank ordering. But again, for basics, for the person starting or restarting, I would put frequency first. I, that consistency variable is, is so important. Now, I do think, though, for the person who is very consistent and you're already in that place, and now we're deciding what is most significant as a variable for you, duration probably becomes really valuable. I'm, I'm going to dive into that actually more. You know what? My next one. So let's put a pin in that one, Benji, and, and I'll come back on that, that duration variable and let you go ahead a little more here, but hopefully answered the basic question. Yeah. So I think something we're talking about is an age old debate. Uh, when starting back, should I focus more on minutes or miles? Mm. This is, this is one of mine on my list. I love it. Go ahead. Sure. So we've talked previously about how our body doesn't necessarily understand miles as the heart is a muscle and the way it works is through duration. It produces different like levels of mitochondria in your bloodstream after well cells do. But regardless, after like 90 minutes, where for someone like you, that could be 15 miles or for someone else that could be nine miles. But as a function of achieving that outcome, it's the 90 minute duration, not the distance. Um, but I would say almost as important as 
those physical adaptations are, people need tangible goals. So I think when you're getting back into it, you need to just decide what is easier for you to visualize and chase. Some people just can't run based on minutes. It feels like they're waiting around to just be done. Whereas if you were to go do a four mile run on the Swamp Rabbit, you know where the two mile marker is, you can get yourself there, you can get yourself back. And I think you just need to decide what you're comfortable with and what's gonna get you out the door more often. What's the answer to that for you, Ben? For me, it's miles. Okay. Um, when I am actually in shape <laughs> and training, it evolves into minutes because at that point I'm so, um, so deep into the process and comfortable with, I need to do these things to achieve my goal. Like to me, I understand that if I'm running 30 minutes, it's 30 minutes. But right now I feel like I'm just kind of flabby and chunky and breathing hard. And I'm like, I have to keep going for a minute and a half. This is awful. So currently it's miles. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I, um, I tend toward the minutes side of this conversation. And I, I do that in part because of what you said earlier. One, our bodies don't really know miles or paces, but they do know the time that we ran and the effort that we ran. And, and so that's one part of my reasoning here. Uh, the second is another point you raised of the physiological adaptations that happen after certain amounts of time of running. You could design a very safe training plan, a very basic training plan, and a very effective training plan for the person starting, restarting, or training hard that uses runs and will take out the effort levels because you could modulate efforts within this, but used runs of solely 30, 60, 75, 90, and 120 minutes. And I'm not telling you, you got to hit those numbers exactly. Like be within the range. I, I think the point you made is, oh, I feel crappy. Why do I need to run another minute? Yeah, I'm not, not telling somebody you have to get exactly to 30 minutes. 29 minutes and 15 seconds is fine. But my point here is you could make all your recovery runs 30 minutes and it could be really valuable to you. You then work your way up to where an hour is an average training day for you immense aerobic value in, in making that jump. As you said, there's some pretty serious adaptations that are taking place at 90 minutes. As I'm saying this, I'm thinking we probably need a whole episode now just on this stuff because it's too much to, to unpack right here. But that 90 minutes maybe is your long run or ultimately, particularly for the marathoner or half marathoner, it's your medium long run, which we have a whole episode about. 90 minutes is a great sweet spot. And then 120 becomes your long run. And so I'm going to go to that point next. That's my next step here. If you are training hard right now, and struggling with long run direction, because that's a topic people ask us more questions about than anything else, the long run. It holds this place as being separate and above the rest of our training, which it's really just one other important piece. So simple tip here is work up to two hours for a long run and keep that two hour long run in your training rotation. It can be easy and easy two hours we see tremendous physiological benefits to running for two hours. And if you're a person who maybe is training a lot right now and doing multiple workouts per week, 
So let's say you are hypothetically working out on Tuesday and Friday and running long on Sunday. Two hours easy on Sunday with two quality days during the week probably works out really well. Maybe you only work out once a week. Maybe you work out on Wednesday and you go long on Saturday. You might be more likely to eventually include more steady running or even quality segments within your two hours. But I love two hours because we see benefits building up to that point, but two plus hours can have some diminishing returns. It can be a greater risk also for injury, particularly if you're trying to close it hard. So that's probably only particularly useful if you're training for longer events. If you're training for a marathon or an ultra marathon, two plus hour long runs make sense. And I'll do in marathon training most of my long run work at the two hour to two and a half hour length. Two and a half is really as long as it ever gets for me. Uh, And two and a half hours is done not really with a ton of hard work in it, but just steady running, a little slower, like a 90% of marathon effort. But you can do two hours week in, week out, or microcycle in, microcycle out as your long run and have incredible success. So if you're uncertain, you feel that the long run is getting overcomplicated in your head, you're seeing so many options about how to run it, even if it's just easy. This is one where I say throw the mileage out sometimes and just think about the two-hour mark. And you're right, Ben. Two hours could be 12 miles for one person, or it could be the old Frank Shorter Two hours is about 20 miles. I run to two hours or 20 miles, whichever happens first, and then I call it a day. He's running essentially six-minute miles, right, through that compared to someone who might be running 10 or 12-minute miles. But each is getting great adaptation out of that two-hour long run. So I'm a minutes-over-miles guy. Build to those increments where I like 30 as a recovery or 30 as a double like say you did a workout and you want to shake out from it. Um, 60 to 75 minutes to me is like a normal regular day. So for a lot of people, we start doing the math. That could be anywhere for the average person between like seven and 10 miles in there. 90 minutes is medium long for me, or it could serve as long for the person who is just getting started or restarted as they build up to ultimately that two hour mark being a great target for the long run. Doesn't mean you need to do it every time. In fact, you probably want to modulate this just like everything else. If you go longer than two hours, we probably need to come back to 100 minutes or 105 minutes or something like that. Tremendous value to runners in every distance event for that two-hour long run. What you got, bud? Yeah, I'm enjoying this that we're going, I have kind of philosophies where you have practical points. Okay, yeah, great. I kind of want to continue with that structure that's somehow worked out this way, where I'm going to say you have to keep it fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of have three points or ways I found to keep it fun. Okay. Uh, one, run somewhere new. Uh, the visual stimulation, uh, especially if you're out in nature, is enough to keep you engaged and excited and grateful to be on a run. Also, you don't dread the miles ahead because you've never seen them, so you're not sure what to expect. So you don't have the existential dread of, oh my goodness, it's paved two miles directly in front of me, I have to get through. My second point is run with someone. Uh, Conversation makes those minutes go by a lot quicker. And it's just a lot of fun. Um, And then number three is do new workouts. 
a big thing for those getting back into it is to use workouts as a measuring stick, almost to a fault. I think we have to have those measuring stick workouts to know where we are at. But if we're consistently doing the same workouts we did, it just kind of makes you feel a separation from where you were. I personally bought a bunch of training guides and manuals from the 70s and 80s and have been able to pick through those kind of the different stimuluses I wanted or stimuli, is that better? I've, whatever the scientific term is, <laughs> I've been able to pull from those books workouts where they were going to achieve what I wanted, um, but it was a structure I hadn't done. For example, I did a Bill Dillinger workout, uh, legendary Oregon coach, where it was a set of repetitions, a 30 minute run, and then a set of repetitions on the track again. I have never gone from doing track reps to going for an easy run and doing more track reps. And I was able to break that workout up in my mind into three separate things. And I think if I took both of those track sessions and pressed them together, I might not have completed the workout. I needed that break and uh, variety to keep it fun and engaging for me. Oh yeah. There's so much good you had there, Ben. As a progression on that, there's plenty of Dellinger stuff you can find where they go from track reps, then the next step is to steady running in between. Not like tempo running, but just a touch slower, and then come back to the track reps. They, they evolve through that. Dellinger is, is fantastic. There's so much good there, and a lot of it's available. You can learn from and enjoy. You, you nailed it on your points there. The idea of a training partner keeps it fun but I'm going to add a piece to it. It helps keep you accountable as well. Yes. The, not just the person who says, Hey man, you didn't do the run. You got to get out. But the guy or girl that gets out there with you wakes up at the early alarm and says, I want to share this experience. Certainly you and I have shared plenty of miles that way. It's part of the fun of why we're egging each other on about racing. It's the accountability of not just being better runners, but being better people in how we interact with the world around us. And so I, I love the point about training partners. As a man who just did runs all over the country on a road trip, I cannot echo loudly enough your point on training new places. As we mentioned on our summer tips episode, this is a great time to get on the trails and train on some trails, just given the, the weather conditions. If you're not a trail runner, maybe try incorporating that. And so training partners, new places, I think are great basics that we can all benefit from. And then you went to different workouts, you know, trying some new fun workouts. This has been an impetus behind my summer of hills. That's now like 15 hill workouts deep, seeing some real progress because I've now gotten in, if we want to call it real workout, a more traditional workout just this morning and ran it well and felt great. And seeing some of that power and confidence coming from those hills. My keep it fun approach for the fall is we're going to transition from summer of hills to fall of fartlek. And that's going to hit me sometime in like September when I move toward more structured marathon training. I'm targeting a December marathon this year. You can play a lot of games with fartlek and make it fun and still be really valuable whether it's minutes or whether it's just objects that you're running to in the distance. So yeah, having some kind of theme, some kind of fun to it. For me, it, it was also 38 miles for 38 years. And that was an idea that I came up with just a couple of weeks before I did it. And it got me so excited. There was so much focused enthusiasm 
for those few weeks of, oh, I got this new target. And that clicked with me. And I thought, I've been stuck on the same targets for too long. You don't have to be new to, to not know where your trajectory points. People struggle with goals all throughout the process. We're going to do a fall marathon series because we have all the majors happening in one fall this year that this never happens. So we're going to do a fall series, but a place we're going to start it is with goal setting. And it became very clear to me, I needed to get out of a rut of training for say marathons or whatever it is for you and do something different. And 38 became a number that I was going to do. And then I thought to myself, you know what? I got, I got to go out and I got to get another shot at a 5k. It hurts to think about, but it's been a couple years. I signed up for an 8k yesterday. I am using it as a stepping stone along the way as a workout uh, on the way to my race goal. But that leads me on a tangent here of maybe because races have been fewer and farther between over the past year plus, maybe one thing that keeps it fun for you is racing more this fall. I have spoken ad nauseum on this program about over racing. So my feelings are well known. I don't think that going out and racing every weekend is the best way to hit your target. But if you haven't been racing at all for a year, I think you could race a little more. I think you could get out once a month or twice a month and enjoy racing and do it at different distances and have success as a result. So that's a fun piece for me. And that's part of why we're doing this whole episode is this past year plus has been really difficult for everyone in a lot of ways. Now, many of us are at a point where we see some level of normalcy in our lives and in our training. And we start asking ourselves, okay, what do we do next now? We almost, it feels foreign to us because it's been 18 months ago since we had that type of thought in our head. Uh, and so hopefully these pieces help you get there. I'm going to add one more here that I actually think is a fun thing too, but it ties to my next piece, uh, the, the other piece of advice I have. It is the simple but really difficult for runners advice, be athletic. Runners get so locked into running in a straight line and doing the same repetitive motion over and over. We tell you a lot about the value of hip and core work and strength work, the stuff that you can find on our YouTube channel, Seconds Flat by Run In. There's also just something to general athleticism that we have as, as children, like we joked earlier about my current inability to jump at this stage in my life. Well, I mean, I'm not playing basketball much anymore these days. There was a time when I had to jump and thankfully I don't need to anymore. What are we doing to just generally be athletic? Maybe that's for someone at every level, a valuable piece. You have been training hard. You're running 80, 90, 100 mile weeks. You have a target race. You're so focused on it. Are you teetering on the edge of burnout? Are you doing enough to reduce injury risk? What are some supplementals that you could put in that could be fun in a way to make you more athletic? For me, while it's been a summer of hills, it has been a summer of the swimming pool. I have been swimming laps probably four or five times a week now. It has replaced my double on the days that I would double. And it has also become a day where I, I've been on a, a day of running off this summer. But I mean, I also did this stupid, like, you know, Ben, I did this ridiculous kind of run, swim, 
lift kayak quadathlon thing at some point in June. I don't know what the heck was going through my head, but it was super fun. It was crazy, but it was fun and it was athletic. It's doing different stuff. So yeah, maybe, you know, there, there is some inherent risk uh, in going out and playing more racquetball or playing more basketball. But maybe that risk is only there because we're not working those muscles at all in our lives and we need to more to protect us to be better runners. Just to add on to that, I think it's not unhealthy for you to approach it without the lens of I'm training. Um, not everyone needs that extra training stimulus from a psychological point of view. Absolutely, they're going to uh, benefit from it physically. But personally, uh, this might sound a little lame. Uh, I've enjoyed rollerblading lately. It's just kind of carefree, nothing like the wind going through your hair and just going down the road. But it's an excellent hip recruitment exercise. Yeah. Um, it does not feel like training at all. So just being outside, sweating, having endorphins flow, no matter what that athletic skill you're doing is, I think it's a positive in everyone's life. It's creating a foundation on which you can build your house when you do train. And so if you're looking for basics, building a strong foundation is always a basic. And that foundation may change. Like maybe you're going to get to a point where you're more targeted toward a race and you need to do more miles. But if you're not, and you're just looking for the Kickstarter, maybe you enjoy getting on the Peloton bike, go for a swim, go for a hike, go rollerblade. We see time and again, studies that prove to us two things about athleticism, particularly in young people in our country. One, Check out the rosters at the Super Bowl. I'll call that probably the biggest sporting event in American culture. I, I'm lukewarm on it, to be honest. I, you know, sometimes I watch, sometimes I don't. Normally I'm going somewhere where there's food, so that'll get me a little excited. But I tell you what I do look at every year is the rosters of those teams. How many of those guys played multiple sports, sometimes all the way up through college, but particularly through their teenage years? Because something's happening here. One, they're just the most athletic guys. You can fool yourself and think, oh, I'm going to focus on football all my life and I'll be great. Yeah, maybe if you're really athletic, but the most athletic guys advance. But also, the bigger point is a ton of those guys did track and field. Linemen who threw the shot or disc. Receivers, running backs who sprinted. Maybe they played basketball. They're working on other skills. They're becoming more athletic and they're reducing injury risk as a result versus the person who does the same activity and recruits the same muscles and pounds those same muscles over and over again, time after time. Moreover, this is the model of what we do as kids when we find great joy in just being active. I remember as I, like maybe middle school age, baseball was by far my best sport. And I would go out in the yard with a plastic baseball bat and a bunch of tennis balls and just throw the ball up in the air to myself and hit it over and over and over again, and then go pick it up from down in the yard and hit it back the other direction. And I'm playing some game in my head that I'm whatever all-star. I was a big Tony Gwynn fan growing up. You know, guys like have sports icons, like in running it's pre or in basketball, it's Jordan. And I liked Tony Gwynn, this like 
soft-spoken, kind of chubby hitter for average on the San Diego Padres who would bat like 340 every year and win the batting title and only hit like eight home runs. And he, to me, was the best thing ever. And I would go out in the yard and I was Tony Gwynn just making contact, just lining singles right into the gap, baby. Find that fun, find that joy while being athletic. As you're saying, come out and rollerblade, man. You are darn right that that is recruiting hip muscles that are valuable in the running process because they're stabilizers. They're going to help reduce your injury risk. I, I love where you're at with, with having fun. And so took a little tangent there, but might as well go to my next point. You're going to be better off if you're more athletic. Our main points here are think about maybe adding days before you add distance. Consider your process. Be patient. Be focused. Don't be a prisoner to the moment and don't get locked into being the athlete you once were or want to be. Do the work, live the lifestyle that actually gets you there. And that lifestyle, I'll add, is more than just the run. It's the other 22 or 23 hours a day. That's going to have a huge impact. If you're training hard right now and you're struggling with long run ideas, think about that two hour, two hour long run. Maybe it's easy to start. Maybe it gets more steady adds quality. It can be a great sweet spot. Consider where you want to be on the minutes versus miles debate. Uh, I'm more of a minute guy and as such I break it down generally at 30, 60, 75, 90, and 120 minutes as great physiological breaking points for the respectively recovery run or if you're starting that could just be your easy day. Then your easy days at 60 and 75 are in that range, which are then medium long or longer if you're just getting started. 90, which is your medium long run if you're more advanced, your long one if you're more novice, and 120 as a traditional long run. And then Benji nailed it. Have fun. Get a training partner. Explore new places to run. You said it. Those are the great philosophical things. Uh, you did a great job guiding us there. And so then the practical, the functional, Think about workouts like fart, like workouts like Summer of Hills, athletic endeavors more broadly, like swimming, basketball, rollerblading, hiking, just a long walk. Talk about a great recovery mechanism and maybe the best psychological recovery mechanism that exists. There's a reason those marathoners 100 years ago did them all the time. We think if you incorporate that stuff, you're going to find an anchor in what can be a really rocky sea particularly after the past year plus that we've all experienced and set you on an appropriate course toward enjoying your running this summer into the fall, winter, and your goals for years down the road and also being successful in those endeavors and give you the best opportunity to get out of that what you hope and what we hope for you. This has been Mile 90 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. Please contact us with any questions or comments, secondsflatpodcast at gmail.com. Benjamin, this was a lot of fun. Enjoy it as always. Maybe I see you on mile 91 and we start here soon previewing the Olympic Games in Tokyo. Are you in? I'm there. Beautiful, my friend. Well, thank you. Thanks to everyone for listening. We will see you next time. Everybody have a wonderful week. Bye.